holy shit, how much Vega risk, how much, you know, negative asymmetry as a group are these people taking? And we still see it out here. I think we talked about it before. You know, we had that huge surge of private banks in Asia doing accumulator products in June 2021 on Alibaba, Tencent, Ping An, the big China tech companies. And every private bank in Singapore and Hong Kong do the exact same thing. And within you know three months, the whole thing is blown up. And six months later, you're hearing rumors of billion-dollar unrecognized losses in bank after bank after bank after bank after bank on ticket sizes that were only you know fifty to a hundred thousand dollars per ticket. It's phenomenal to scale up at all. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Dave, welcome back to the podcast and thank you for staying late in the office to join Jim and me today for what I'm sure will be a very insightful and fun conversation on a few explosive topics, no doubt, as we look into the year ahead of us. How are you doing? How's life in Singapore? I'm good. It's good. It's been a lively start to the year. Been raining nonstop every day so, since about Christmas. So, But other than that, it's great. What about you, Jim? It's very early morning where you are. How are things in Chicago? Uh, rainy, you know, somewhere between snow and rain. Yeah, it's uh, sun's not quite up here yet either. So it's, uh, you know, we got David going to bed and me just waking up. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm the lucky one today for sure. Now, last year, we discussed topics like what about the 40, the sharp world, JDBs and the BOJ, lessons learned from an Indonesian shipbuilder, if I remember correctly, and how, and a few other things. Um, and perhaps I can kick it off uh, maybe by asking you, Dave, if these topics turned out to be as important uh, as you thought they would be, or if one of them, two of them stood out uh, when you think back of, on 2023, before we move into kind of looking ahead and into 2024. Uh, yeah, I think, you know, I think, you know, obviously shortly after we talked, uh, the BOJ made their first transition away from YCC, caused one of the biggest vol events of the year on that day. You know, the whole dynamic around who's going to own the 40, the central bank policy, trying to restore their, recover their price stability mandates, the impact of the who's going to own the 40, you know, Again, a few months after we talked on Silicon Valley Bank and Credit Suisse and, you know, uh, uh, one of 30 G-SIBs in the world uh, going out of business and getting a forced takeover from their main rival. Uh, you know, the impact of the change in interest rates of the lack of capital in, in the sharp world regulated, the traditional 
financial math regulated financial industry, you know, showed its teeth in March. Uh, the market, you know, strong reacted to an anticipation of a knee-jerk reversal of Fed policy, the, the Pavlovian response to the Fed will always slash rates. But instead, the Fed did, again, exactly something we talked about on that call, you know, de facto financial repression, right? They went to the regional banking system and said, we'll provide this BTFP, this bond repo. We'll subsidize you to hold on to government bonds. We, you know, we'll, we'll give you even more incentive to hold already zero-risk-weighted assets, already non-mark-to-market, already hidden, accumulated, unrealized losses, you know, maximum unlimited leverage applied to them, we'll subsidize it even more. So just don't sell them. And so, you know, all of the stuff we talked about, you know, and inevitably, because, you know, we're always, Jim and I, we're always talking about fragility in the system and, and, and uncapitalized risk or mismeasured risk. And as Jim always talks about flows and et cetera, the, the positioning in the market. Well, you know, we talked about that and I'll talk about all day today if you want to, you know, there's still the biggest flow position on capitalized risk in the market is that the financial system, I probably said it last year, I don't remember, you know, the regulated financial system is allowed to treat, you know, government bonds somewhere between riskless and risk-reducing. So either you don't have to provide any capital to hold them, or you can reduce the capital you hold against other assets by holding them, and there is no increase in risk from adding leverage to them. Right? Well, that's the obviously what causes the system to creak, and we talked about it last year. I remember, you know, remember so succinctly that you know, I'd said, you know, listen, you can look at the fall dynamics and the long-dated interest rate markets we were playing in. You can see the thing that eventually is really going to hurt is a bear steepening. And, you know, sure enough, come August, September, October, you saw the pain of that. And then the timely reversal of the narrative and the, as the, the, the term I coined on you, on that conversation last year, the much hoped for immaculate recession, you know, is upon us. As I wrote last month, recession, yay. And you took the, you immediately took the pressure off the system as, as interest rates declined and the the pricing of future interest rate cuts immediately fed through the yield curves. And once the pressure is moved from the system, all that capital is allowed to go out and re-lever up or reapply good correlation to more risk-taking. And so you get the everything rally that we've had since November and December. But it comes back to the same thing I always talk about. And, you know, Jim and I spent tons of time talking about what well, we had the good fortune of catching up in Austin at the CBOE event this year. Just be convex. Just be convex. Make money on both sides. Participate, protect. It's been, you know, yet another absolutely sensational year for convex portfolios. A long stream of absolutely sensational years for convex portfolios. And and so yeah, I thought it, you know, I thought we lived last year's conversation and we still are. Yeah, no, well, I mean, I completely agree. And and, and as you uh, rightly uh, say, it's usually not the things that we think are risky that's going to get us into trouble. It's the things we think that are not risky and then we level them up and then it all blows up as we've seen so many times. Now, I'm going to throw a question kind of to both of you and then we'll we'll kick uh, into gear and looking looking more into uh, the, the new year. 
Um, but last year when we spoke, and I think this was not just us, but I think lots of investors last year were worried about what was to come uh, in 2023. Obviously, the year didn't start out great, but it ended pretty well for traditional assets had you just stayed long uh, all through the year. It feels pretty much the opposite uh, right now as we sort of start the new year of 2024. Um, the economic climate seems reasonably reassuring. We have, you know, falling prices, lower inflation. We have still strong employment picture. We have lower rates, as, as you put it, Dave. And so I'd love to just sort of ask you both, um, you know, what are we missing uh, or what's the market missing from this sort of too good to be true picture? You know, I've been saying for a long time and I was, you know, I wrote about it probably starting in July or August saying this and that the good outcome is going to be a recession because in a recession, people will buy the bonds. The bad outcome was the scenario that we were staring down the barrel of in October. Nobody's going to buy the bonds. Nobody buys the bond. The, the systemic risk in the system is the lack of capital supporting all the leverage and fixed income in regulated financial institutions, right? If, if bonds melt down, banks, pension funds, insurance companies, wealth management go out of business. If stocks go down and equity holders lose money, it's not systemically risky in a sense, given the, the structure and nature of the markets now, which is far different to what it was in 08 or, or you know, as you just said, Dale, you know, as I always say, you know, you know, banks don't go out of business taking risk. They are the business leveraging things they're, they're told are not risky or allowed to account for is not risky. And so yeah, I think that's still a problem when we're in this Goldilocks period of, yay, the recession. Now, there's obviously some things out there that are maybe, you know, not necessarily priced like we're going to have a recession while everybody's out celebrating uh, forward yield curves and equity markets like this recession's coming and rates will go down. But, you know, there's a lot of credit markets that aren't necessarily priced like we're going to have a recession. It's going to be the default. It's like I said, the immaculate recession. So... It's it's a it, that pendulum, and yeah, I'm sure Jim will tell you. Jim talks, you know, is the best about talking about, you know, the pendulum or the everybody's on this side of the boat that everybody moves over to this side of the boat, and you get that, you know, overshoot on both sides. You know, we were at one side at the end of 2021, and then at the opposite side at the end of 2022, and back to the other side at the end of 2023. At the end of the day, exactly as you say, you know, it's. Over the course of 2024, once again, it'll be what we don't know that matters. And so have a portfolio that's optimized to the divergence from the mean of the expectation, not one that's optimized to the mean of the expectation. Because the mean, as it turns out, Jim and I always talk about this when we're together, the mean is the average of the divergences. You, you almost never get the mean. And the mean in the long-term path has de minimis impact on the compounding. It's the divergences that drive the compounding. And, and so it's just a matter of building a portfolio that's resilient to the divergences, come back to BQ of X. But I, I can't wait to hear what Jim has to say because he's more attuned to the, the, the sort of current pulse of things than I am. Oh, I mean, you're, you're too kind, David. I, uh, I can listen to you talk all day. I feel like I'm always picking up nuggets here and there. My, my thought on this is really, I mean, you said the word Goldilocks, right? And that's the perception right now that that we have the best of both worlds. And 
The interesting thing is, is not too far away from the best of both things is the worst of both things. And I actually think that's what we're closer to. I think we're more in stagflation and, and, um, there's a structural pressure that used to exist that was deflationary as a function of, uh, you know, our ability to send all the money to the top and that deflationary core pressure for 40 years allowed us to lower interest rates secularly from 20 to zero and stimulate and stimulate and stimulate from a monetary perspective, um, which allowed us to create more Goldilocks for quite some time. I actually think we're going the opposite way, right? We have, there's a structural inflationary pressure um, from the rebalancing of inequality and the political pressures uh, that are driving it. And now we're having to, to try and manage a much more difficult situation, which is to battle structural inflation um, you know, that means we're removing liquidity every time to pull, pull back against that. Um, so what happens now, you know, when we get the recession, you know, that's the big question now, what happens when we get the recession, right? Because now much harder to stimulate, you really risk what we risked in, you know, 1970, 71, when William McChesney Martin pivoted into a year and a half long recession. And then inflation, which had been six and came down to two or one and a half, then went to 12. And so my fear is that, that actually, you know, this is the worst of both worlds. You're hearing the word soft landing, Goldilocks everywhere. I think people uh, will be talking and hopefully when we get together next time, we'll review what we talked about. But I think, I think, um, I think there's an increasing probability you hear the word stagflation going forward. Um, and I think that's the thing that people are taking their eyes off right now. Jim, since you uh, are getting warmed up here on an early morning in Chicago, where do you want to go next with some of the uh, topics that we want to pick Dave's brain about? I think it's best to start from the beginning. When David and I got together at RMC um, in Austin, as he mentioned, you know, he, he gave a wonderful presentation and he does uh, this presentation quite often. He, this is one of, uh, you know, one of the things he's, he knows better than anybody and presents very well on. And there are a couple items there that, that I just wanted to lead off with. And you already referred to it, but your broad framework of, uh, of really, you know, the, the football pitch, right. And, 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 and cutting, you know, uh, both sides. Um, I, I'd love to kind of have you walk through for our listeners um, the importance of using long volatility and owning convexity. Uh, that sits at the core of both of our views, but I think you do a better job uh, expressing it than most anybody. If you could even speak to maybe the scale of uh, compounded returns, um, you know, difference that comes from that. Um, and also kind of just the geometric, why geometric returns are so important. I think that'd be super helpful to start up. Yeah, so that, you know, that presentation, which is a, a format of uh, a form of a presentation I always talk about. My, it's my it's my ten to fifteen minute presentation version. And I just lead off with a simple picture of the S and P, which over forty years, four hundred and eighty months, has compounded from a hundred dollars becomes two thousand seven hundred and forty dollars. But if you if you miss the ten best months, that Instead of that 2,740, you only get 962. If you miss the 10 worst months, 
2,740 becomes 10,166. And then we just do some, some math, mathematical gymnastics and say for the, the total 40 year, 480 month long-term compounded return, the 10 worst months contribute a little over 40% of the return. The 10 best months contribute a little over 30% of the return. And the middle 460 months contribute 25% of the return. And, and yet, you know, in, in what I call sharp world, the traditional financial maths of random walks and Brownian motion and normal distributions, et cetera, we're all taught to ignore the two percentile wings, focus on the expected center of the outcome. And yet, 75% of the returns are driven by the two two percentile wings. And so back to what I said just a second ago, you know, the, the, the compounding portfolio is the one that benefits from divergence from the means, not one that's a disbenefits. So using Nassim phraseology, anti-fragility. And then I take that, the, the shadings of those percent contributions, and I overlay them on a football pitch. And I draw on that football pitch the normal probability distribution and say, that's the frequency of where the ball spends time in a football match. 96% of the time, it spins it in between the two penalty boxes. Only 2% of the time does it spend it inside the two penalty boxes. But the entire outcome of the match is determined inside the two penalty boxes. And so, you know, that's the perfect analogy for investment portfolios because our eyeballs are focused on the 460 months, the financial industry, the fiduciary industry wows us with all their incredible midfield passing and movements, all their activity that catches the eyeball and has so much sophistication and flow and beauty to it and has no impact on the compounding path. In fact, I'll argue, and you guys know I'll argue this, is explicitly ignoring the compounding path and focused on the ensemble average of 200 parallel universes in one slice of time and ignoring where all of the impact of compounding comes, which is in the big numbers in the weeks. And then I draw what we call an entropy curve, Shannon's entropy, the inverse of that, and shade the area underneath that curve per the shading of our contribution to the returns of that 480 month pass of the S&P. And it's the area under the entropy curve that is actually the contributor of the compounding, not the, so it's not the frequency of the monthly returns that matters, it's the magnitude of the monthly returns. And, and you know, trying to get people to understand, and you know, you'll hear me say it over and over again, that the, the biggest flaw in the financial industry, and what I crudely call sharp world, is that there's not a metric or an incentive for compounding. And, you know, obviously what should be the end objective of the capital owner, terminal geometric compounding, is ignored by the financial industry and the Nobel Prize winning mathematics and academia, all hard-coded in the regulatory construct of Basel I and IAS 19 and Solvency II and et cetera, that we all function under. And, and that, in a sense, that destruction of compounding is the destruction of wealth or to, you know, Jim's constant story, you know, it's literally a transfer of wealth from savers to the financial industry. And, and it's, a, it's a disgrace, and I rant on and on about it, and 
you know, I, I probably told you guys this before separately, you know, wrote letters here in Singapore, like Nassim was doing in New York for my regulator here to take it to Basel to say, we should not embed value at risk in the original BIS regulatory capital guidelines, or you're going to end up where we ended up in 2008, you know, but that fight, and you guys know, well, I'm not coming anywhere close to winning it. I'm not making any progress in it, except for the few willing and, and visionary clients, investors that guys like Jim and I have that have caught on, jumped on board, and massively benefited. You know, it's the best, you know, five-year history for a convex barbell portfolio, maybe ever. And certainly, you know, the best you know, relative outperformance over a traditional 60-40 or a risk pair, you know, a sharp rate portfolio that's that's structured uh, under the misspent belief that correlations and volatility are constant. And that compounding separation, you, you'll never catch up. You know, I, I have this conversation right now, Jim, you probably have the same all the time with people telling us how, you know, telling me how pension funds or endowments or family offices you know, that they did okay last year with their sort of mid-single-digit returns and they avoided all the risk that was out there. I said, you know, last year was a just a, a, a blind layup to be up 30% and just a simple barbell strategy of long equities, long vol. And you just missed a 30% compound that your, your in-capital order will never catch up on. And, and so that's my, you know, this sort of the, the lead into my presentation and then I show some of the you know, some simple hypothetical examples, again, on the impact of compounding of the relative concavity versus convexity of a portfolio against a, a benchmark, and then show some real-world examples of how you construct that and how you do it. Now, easier said than done, and this is, a, you know, maybe the number one conversation I have by email or Twitter or LinkedIn, this guy's saying, well, how do retail guys do this? For whatever reason, they don't want to let retail guys do it. They don't want to let me be an ETF. They don't want to let retail guys invest in a strategy that protects capital. Now, out here, and increasingly, as Jim talks about all the time over there, they're more than willing to let guys short volatility in structured products that expose them to unbounded, ridiculous risk with you know, incredibly negative asymmetric return dynamics. But the inverse of that, very difficult for the retail to access it. I wish somebody could explain that to me. And so that's that presentation and the whole presentation, again, I was telling Nils before you jumped on, Jim, I'm sick of central bank. So I'm trying to be mathy in the, in the December presentation and write another version of convexity bias and volatility tax and that sort of stuff. So yeah, it's, it's what we're passionate about and we just want to help the whole world have a better retirement and it's a constant fight to get that. Yeah. I mean, I wanted to highlight that up front because like you said, it's, the most important thing, but is rarely talked about anywhere else, right? So I just wanted to really give you a platform to, to highlight that. That was the title of it was, you know, one thing. And then I lead off with the uh, City Slickers clip of Curry saying, the secret of life is one thing. And we all innately know that because in, in where you have skin in the game, we know that it's a non-ergotic path that we have to avoid bankruptcy. We have to afford, avoid the car crash. And my race car analogy, we have to avoid the solvency barrier in our investment paths. 
And, and while in that ensemble average of 200 parallel universes, in one slice of time, it may seem very unlikely that you get your two percentile outcome. But in your path of your life, of your investment path, I guarantee you get your two percentile outcomes by definition. And it's those two percentile outcomes that will drive your terminal capital, far more so than all of the rest. Yeah, and, and you mentioned an important word there, path, right? So in the end, you know, uh, entropy always wins, right? But in between there, we can have periods where things don't work. And that's the reality of just randomness, right? But some things are not necessarily random over shorter periods of time. And so I want to highlight another thing that you brought up in your presentation. Uh, and let's want to talk about that a bit as well, which was you brought up a wonderful graph of history going back 800 some years. Really, do we get to look at the world, you know, 800 years of, of um, actual data um, as it relates to things? And, and this was the UK's 20-year average inflation versus inflation volatility. And it really highlights how unique um, the period 1997 to 2016 were, right? They're really, really incredibly low inflation relative to all the other, again, 800 years of history and particularly low inflation as a function of the volatility of inflation. Um, I have several ideas and thoughts of why that has been the case, um, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. And then you also express that, you know, you argue a, a regular refrain that you, you believe the genie is out of the bottle at this point, that, that the, the nature of unprecedented historical volatility suppression is, is coming to an end. Um, and so I'd love to hear your thoughts kind of both those things, how they may or may not be connected and why, you know, again, why were we in, do you believe we were in this type of period and why do you think we're normalizing um, potentially to, to the, the long-term uh, path? Yeah. Yeah. I think in much as you talk about Jimmy, I think, you know, we went through a, a very similar complexity in the sixties. And that led to a structural change, the 1971 release from gold, and sort of launched us into a, a decade of volatility, of divergences from the mean, right? Where, where imagine, you know, a, a, a highly convex investment strategy would have been a lot better in the 70s than just your standard 60-40, a lot, lot better. And then that, that sort of cleansed you got the double whammy of the, the defeat of inflation or the restoration, the Paul Volcker restoration of price stability. Let's fight it. And then the, the Greenspan era of the new, the, the modern era of inflation targeting. And again, they call it inflation targeting. I would call it price stability because I don't, I hate the, the, the blending together that inflation is the CPI index. Inflation is the growth of money and credit, and a measure of the impact of that is the CPI index. But everybody now at the Melbourne Clash is just call that inflation. But they targeted that. They 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 violated Goodhart's law, and they took a measure and turned it into a target, and it became useless as a measure. And it's that that picture of those dots that I know you guys have seen in my write-ups. It'll be in this month's write-up again because it, it drives again my argument. Hey, look how important a convex, anti-fragile, resilient investment strategy has been for the last 10, 15, 20 years. 
imagine what it will be when this dot starts going up, right? When this, and, and I show in all my pictures, you can see that we're in a regime shift in the last three to five years, depending on how you want to, well, four to five years now, where that dot starts moving higher and to the right. So inflation's going up and volatility's going up. And the benefit of a convex, resilient investment strategy has been, you know, the, the separation to the traditional strategy has been, you know, exponential. Boof, off you've gone. Because you're capturing these divergences. And I feel strongly, and Jim knows it, you know, that that's a great proxy, that foregoing of the suppression of price stability, the, the, the Minsky stability begets instability, flows through the entire system with high nominal GDP volatility, which what we've seen, unbelievable. I mean, third quarter nominal GDP, right? Who would have predicted that eight years ago? Nobody, right? And, and that means high interest rate volatility because the central bank has to now react right or wrong. It's, you know, it's sort of written into their mandate that they have to respond. And so they do. That creates interest rate volatility, which then creates all kinds of volatility, commodity market volatility, as you know, Jim and I are happy to talk about, but it's probably boring if we go too far. You know, it, the whole thing creates a whole bunch of sociopolitical volatility the world all over. And the the application of this volatility suppression of price stability and the impact of a period of productivity growth and onlining of globalization that should have led to declining prices was offset by a mass input of money and credit into the system through monetary policy, which resulted in massive asset inflation, which they don't measure, air call inflation, but is obviously the root of wealth segregation and, and fragility and social systems the world over and 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 inevitably has led to the Arab Spring and 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 this sort of proliferation of sociopolitical instability that's now gone from being internal revolutionary civil war instability to cross border and cross continent and you know that somehow needs to be stopped because you know the old nil how fourth turning we we know that the last time we went through this problem in the 30s and factions of the world printed money to avoid their version of the depression didn't end very good and so you know hopefully there's more rational heads around and at some point uh the the forever proliferation of government debt forced into the hands of insavers through badly incentivized and regulated financial institutions in the form of financial oppression stops. But I don't see any, nobody, you know, in the year, and I think I heard Jim or Niels, one of you guys talked about this on your group call, you know, it's the largest election year in the history of the world. There's more people voting this year than ever. And we've gotten a taste from, you know, places like Argentina and the Netherlands of the directionality of that dissatisfaction in the voting process. So be convex. We completely see eye to eye on, on this stuff, uh, not surprisingly. Um, the word for me is control, right? The Federal Reserve had complete control over that period. They were able, as I mentioned before, to do unlimited monetary policy because of the deflationary 
regime that was set up before them. Two mandates, price stability, you know, growth. If you have slight deflation or deflation and you can stimulate into it to continue to generate growth, it is a perfect machine. Why wouldn't they do that forever? Pretty, pretty easy, right? Just do more monetary policy, put more oxygen in the system. Um, just create bigger dinosaurs, right? But the problem is, as, as you know, is inequality. And that's the thing. You can't reduce a system to two, two elements and run the whole economy based on two, because guess what? It's not that simple. We have human beings in this system, and, and those human beings uh, you know, don't just care about GDP maximization, right? Um, you know, they, they, they feel that it is important because uh, we're human for something that is fair or more just. And when things are unjust and politically as a people, we decide to maximize median outcomes as opposed to mean outcomes, subtle difference, major, uh, you know, differences in outcomes. Now we have to give people money. We have to take money from the top and rebalance. And all of a sudden things look a lot more like they used to a machine where, you know, median, you know, sending money to people, demand side economics matters again. And so we're, we're moving out of a period of pure Federal Reserve central bank control because they can't control it anymore because the political forces have now come up that says, you know what, there's another thing that's important. You can't just do this game anymore. You have to worry about us, the people in the system. And, um, so I believe that's the big difference. Uh, you know, Greenspan in 1996, not a surprise that this starts in 1997, right? Realized that the natural state of unemployment could be lower without causing inflation, right? And so they did more and, and, and the experiment, the grand experiment began. But as you always mention, right, uh, you know, uh, you can kind of push things into a direction, right? You can... You can uh, assume that uh, things will go great, uh, if, you know, because in front of you, they seem to be going great. The volatility is low. And I think this will lead us into the next conversation. But what you're really doing is you're creating more and more pressure in a system. Um, the more you do to, 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 to generate more growth with unnatural um, kind of means, um, and you, do, you create what, what I would call a, a sumo market, right? Or, or, you know, these tectonic plates. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, that system is not the same as no pressure. Yes, it mean, may mean no volatility. Two equal forces pushing against each other may mean no volatility. But it's not the same thing. When those plates shift all of a sudden, you get an earthquake, right? Um, and I think that's what's happening here, right? We've been building a pressure in, in the system and operating under a very simple system because we could during some period of time saying, well, we'll deal with the consequences later if there are consequences. We're not even sure if there are, but there's always consequences. There's always consequences and that pendulum swings. But we created a, you know, a, a, a arguably 30, 40 year period of growth, peace, cooperation, the growth of China, the, you know, globalization and Unwinding that is very difficult. You know, not a, not a not a coincidence that in the 1970s, the last time we saw this, we saw uh, you know the the growth of a Cold War, the Vietnam and a hot war that was kind of a, uh, a extension of that, right? 
a proxy of that. Um, we had saw OPEX and commodity, you know, set, uh, scarcity and flexing of muscles uh, in any way you could. Deglobalization broadly during that period. And of course, greater and greater fiscal spending. All of it's happening again, right? But now with all the malinvestment, all of this kind of mean reversion from a very off, you know, the graph spot. And I think that's what people have to be broadly aware of in terms of the path. You know, entropy always wins, but when it goes, what the path goes one way, particularly far, um, you know, that entropy can be very fast and sudden and dynamic and even more convex. Um, so anyway, that's my, <laughs> my, my extension of what you're saying. Yeah. Minsky. Stability begets instability. It's, it's self-organized exactly. criticality. It's the propping up of the sand pile. Let's keep propping it up and you're just creating more fragility. It's the, the forest fire analogy. You put out every fire, you create so much fire risk that you can't control one eventually. And, and you get the fourth turning, you get the, the, the you know, the, the reset dynamic punctuated equilibrium and evolutionary biology. That's how the world evolves. It doesn't evolve gradually. It evolves in big jumps with long, long periods of stasis in between. I, I had the joy, I don't know if I ever told you this, guys, I, I got invited to a Greenspan breakfast. I think it was one of the preeminent uh, investment banks that invited me shortly after he'd retired. And somebody asked him the obvious question, how do you deal with the dichotomy of the dual mandate? And he said, you know, roughly what you said, Jim, he said, plot out, well, we, we remove from our measurement of price stability assets and then we use our monetary policy to inflate assets. So we get the wealth effect of growth through the asset inflation. And we have stable price stability because our policies directed at asset inflation, we don't measure it. And so, you know, you know, you know this is Greenspan. So what do you know? This is 2000 and, you know, I don't want to say, you know, 2000, when did he retire? 2006, something like that. And, you know, saying, so we, we've, we've solved the dichotomy we solved it. You know, I'm the great maestro. We drive growth through the wealth effect and we don't count that the asset inflation is as part of our price stability measure. And now the two, now the two objectives are complementary. Amazing, right? Again, we've seen these things in the past, but the, the pressure and the extent to where we've gone along that path this time, I think that makes it particularly out of uh, statistical you know, historical precedent, um, at least in recent historical precedent. And I think that's the part that's particularly, um, I, I think, I don't know if we talked about this last year, but you know, we talked about a lot, you know, there's a lot of comparisons to the seventies, Jim, you do comparisons to the seventies, right? In terms of the behavior of markets, but the obvious difference, and this is a, a, you know, a difference that, you know, was sort of pointed out on a group email chain from an old Fred, a famous, uh, hedge fund investor in New York. There's the obvious big difference. Paul Volcker was dealing with 20% of debt to GDP when he decided to fight inflation. Jay Powell's dealing with 120%. And not just in the US, you know, Japan, Europe, UK, you know, the entire world has blown through the Rubicon of 100% of debt to GDP. And then, you know, this is the big problem. So this gets to the whole conversation. And again, a lot of what we were talking about last year, my, you know, who's going to own the 40 fiscal dominance, right? It's, you know, the, the concept that there's only so much the central banks can do before they have to start buying the bonds again. 
because as we saw from the Treasury Borrowing Advisory Committee just before Janet you know, shocked the market by reducing her duration issuance, they said, we can't buy any more duration bonds. Stop it. We're full. All right? And, and this is the big challenge, and this is the loop that everybody, when you start talking about it, that you say, wait a minute, this is why I say the recession's the good outcome. Because the bad outcome is, you know, Janet, as I titled uh, two months ago my, my write-up, the Hunger Games, right? Janet Yellen is Katniss in the Hunger Games. She's going to get hers. Trust me, she'll fund her deficit, but she's crowding out everybody else. And if you, if you want to argue that the prognosticators are right and that we're going into recession, I would argue that the sign, the most obvious sign of that recession is the declining lending in the U.S. banking system, in particular, the regional banking system, who have been incentivized to hold on to their treasuries that they can repo at face value and not make any loans to anybody else. I mean, it is explicitly crowding out. And that crowding out isn't just relevant in the U.S. regional banking system. It's relevant in bond markets and the capital markets all around the world. And if, you know, the, the, the banks who have held all of these bonds as zero risk-weighted assets and hold to maturity and accumulated, you know, in the case of Bank of America, famous $130 billion of unrealized loss, and they don't want to buy any more, obviously, you know, you, you get into a, a, a loop that the, the outcome's really hard to resolve. And, and what I dubbed the Jim Grant conference, you know, the great stop loss. You know, people start saying, well, I've had enough. I'm getting out before everyone else gets out. Even though, yeah, I'm sure that CFO at Bank of America, well, he doesn't have to mark those to market and says, I'll just wait till they mature at face value. $130 billion unrealized loss because you got a trillion dollars lent out at one and a half percent when the current market rate, you could be lending it, you know, to your clients at six or seven, somebody on the board saying, I'm not sure that's a good business model. I wanted to, I wanted to maybe just step in here with a, with a sort of a, a thought that I'm not sure I've completely thought this through, but, but I'm, I'm curious and I can't imagine anyone better to, um, to, uh, think about this and, and give some use so when I got into the financial industry in the 80s, even though we had already started this path of globalization, which essentially, you know, led us to this extreme carry regime, everything was super stable, just as, as Jim pointed out from the chart also on, 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 on inflation. But back in the 80s, the world was not the same, meaning some economies, so the Far East could be doing well, Europe could be some kind of, you know, not doing great, and and the U.S. could be in a recession or whatever. I mean, we were kind of moving in different directions. And, and both of you talk about at the moment that we see these pressure points building up. But at the same time, I think we can probably agree that globalization is not where we are heading right now and haven't been for the last couple of years. So I'm just wondering... Is there something good about deglobalization that might help take off the pressure between what is going on in different parts of the world? And for example, as an, as an example, and maybe not tied directly to globalization or not, I mean, the Bank of Japan's have kind of engineered something interesting with the bond holdings because they took them out from the banks, which which we now see in the West are full of them, and 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 that's not a great situation. But they seem to have not only done that, they've sort of re 
liquefied the, the, the JGB market to some extent. Um, so even though we've kind of been poo-pooing the Japanese model and what they were doing for decades, may, maybe there's something we can learn from them. I don't know. This is um, thinking out loud. I, 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 well, I don't know what we learn. I think we might learn that uh, a period of not driving inflation has created a stability and a homogeneity that doesn't exist in most other cultures right now. And now, obviously, the demographic problems there are uh, uh, a different problem to solve. But I think, you know, and you know, I spend most of my time looking at Japan and China and what's going on in the second and third largest economies in the world that yeah. too many people, I think, aren't looking at most of the time. And as they're, you know, calling Jim to find out whether the VIX is going up and down tomorrow. Yeah, so Japan, I think, is really interesting. We talked about it last year, and I've been saying for a long, long time, the most dangerous peg in the world. Well, in a sense, they've eliminated the YCC peg. Took them sort of three stages and steps over their quarter. They did it once a quarter, effectively, and and it's gone now. There's no more line in the sand. There's a reference point. They'll buy bonds when they need to. Now, meanwhile, there's still a, a negative policy rate, and they're still doing full QE. So they're you know they're still going to buy a trillion. They still bought a trillion dollars worth of JGBs last year. Um, and they're still buying on their regular schedule, and they're still there to buy more should they deem it necessary. But by stepping away from the original line in the sand at 25 basis points and then 50 basis points and then one, to let the pressure out of the system. I thought Grant Williams described it great when we did it a couple months ago. He said it's like the Matrix where they fired the bullets, but they were coming slow enough you could dodge them as they came. And so it let the system kind of clean up that. Now, that's the you know, the 10-year part of the curve, they still have negative front-end rates and, and there's still some some problems in how they make subsequent adjustments and challenges. It's not easy and straightforward. But as you say, Dales, and I'm a huge advocate of the you know, you guys know I don't I don't have a view, but you can see some sharp differences between Japan and the rest of the world. Higher interest rates don't hurt the private sector in Japan, right? The notoriously corporates and consumers don't borrow. They're not levered up. You know, the, the, the corporate sector in Japan has done the opposite of the financialization of equity markets and balance sheets that's gone on in the West. They've gotten all of their profits through efficiency. They've squeezed costs and they've, you know, all of their profitability comes from margin efficiency and the market assigns no price multiple to that whatsoever. And higher interest rates would, in general, be a benefit for the private sector in Japan, be a benefit, a much bigger or much less of a scary risk to the banks. Because again, the banks that, you know, the Bank of Japan taking over 50% of the JGB market was almost a direct transfer from what the banking system used to hold. So you pension funds and insurance companies, their share of the market remains constant and bank share collapsed as Bank of Japan took it over, much like. GDP growth, C plus I plus G, GDP growth was constant for 30 years. And the share of that of consumers was was constant. And there was an inversion of government and investment, right? So government took over a clouded out whole investment. So I said this, I think I said this maybe with Grant the other day. You know, I had this, I could, to me, I have this sort of idea in my head that Japan looks like the U.S. coming out of World War II. 
right? The U.S. had been through the Great Depression, which is simply just the total destruction of private sector debt, right? Private sector debt in the U.S., which was the Depression, went to zero. And then you had another five years, four to five years of austerity as the only borrower in the system was the government to fund the war. And then when you came out the other end of that, you had this massive, you know, at the time, highest ever government debt, and they shrunk. And you had completely clean private sector balance sheet, and they crowded the whole thing in, and you had this long sustained period of stable growth until the credit went too far and the government started borrowing aggressively again in the 60s. And then you got inflation, and then they released the gold peg and the inflation accelerated, you know, and you got that you know, the other end of that cycle, as Jim would say, everybody moved to the other side of the boat, right? And Japan has that sort of look right now where, you know, such a significant, you can make an argument that such a significant portion of the private sector benefits from higher rates. But I still think it's the most dangerous peg in the world because what does that mean when that whole private sector has been the largest net foreign investor, net foreign creditor ever, who says, geez, our opportunities are better now back home. But 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 at the same time, I'm sure I've heard you say it's not the most dangerous peg for the Japanese, it's for the rest of the world. Yeah. And that's that's it. They are the, the reversal of those flows, which I think is a, a very logical and rational thing. And you know, again, I, I don't know anything and I my my positions are all about what I don't know. But, you know, Dave Dredge is a guy who sat around and paid attention to a lot of economies and markets in Asia for the last 35 years. You know, that you can make a pretty good argument that, you know, it's a, this could generate a reversal of flows. And, and that has implications because Japan, for a long time, and really right now, is the last provider of liquidity to the Hunger Games. Everybody else, with the shutting down... You know, the shutting down of QE by all the other big central banks, the banking, the your banking balance sheets are full, the available capital, because it's been overextended through the application of leverage in 60-40 risk parity, bank balance sheets, liability-driven investment strategies, is unable to absorb more and add more leverage to that because it turns out that correlation is a disbenefit, not a benefit now. And so the last guy putting, you know, an extra trillion dollars liquidity into the system and 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 you know, Jim's point, you know, forcing interest rates to zero in the front end and incentivizing the continuation of this yen carry trade. If he says I'm gonna, you know, flip over and join the other side of the Hunger Games, it's a problem for the system. And, you know, the extension of that and talk about as much as you guys want to. You know, China is the other big part of that story, right? China was by far virtually the singular credit impulse creator for a decade post the GFC. And now they're going through their own post uh, excess hangover in some spectacular fashion. I mean, if you want to, you know, if you want the opposite argument to the Magnificent Seven or ridiculously expensive, go and look at a few Chinese stocks in Hong Kong. Hang Seng index is back to the uh, 1997 level. Uh, there, there's cheap value, but there's all kinds of arguments why it's cheap. It's not, not obvious that it's a great opportunity. Funny enough, I think when we talked last year, everybody was all, now's the time to get back into China and Hong Kong. 
you had this massive rally from November to January, and then everything you know is you know down another thirty percent from last year's lows. You know, despite global stock markets having a really really good year, and China's you know doing everything they can to manipulate and hold their currency steady to you know create the the impression and the benefit of suppressed volatility of the currency and and try to keep flows coming in and not scaring away and are absolutely insatiable in their appetite for inflows and yet you know registered famously I'm sure you guys may have seen the chart you know the first net outflow FDI month in you know since they opened the market to FDI flows sort of thing and so you know there's all kinds of interesting challenges and interesting opportunities out here and this Jim knows yeah as is, we're all sitting around the uh, the drink table in Austin with Jim and Noel and Devin and you know the other sort of professionals in the U.S. volatility markets. Yeah, you know, all they want to talk about is what I'm doing in Asia, and China, and Japan, and yeah, you know, they're so bored of talking to each other about VIX and S and P mall. They're like, Dave, come on, tell us something. Yeah, and and on that end, like I don't want to stop talking about this. This is uh, this is the the really interesting stuff as far as I'm concerned. Um, you know, I'd love to dive a l- little bit more into that. As you mentioned very astutely, you know, you highlighted the last two times we essentially had a clearing of the debt, right? A debt, you called a debt jubilee or whatever you want, but it was a subtle one, right? The depegging of the dollar from gold was essentially a debt jubilee, right? And I think, you know, this time, yes, we're at 120% of GDP and it's almost, I would say, inevitable that we're going to have to somehow monetize that debt or get rid of it. Um, and Japan did it, as you highlighted, by just buying a greater and greater share of uh, of their debt. They were able to do that to a large extent because of the carry trade and because the, the currency, right, um, you know, wasn't affected every time, much like in the U.S. these days, at much time, anytime we have some volatility or we have some uh, you know, interesting you know, increase in QE, the, the, do- the dollar gets stronger. We have the exorbitant privilege. And that's what allows us uh, to, you know, in your Hunger Games model, uh, to be Katniss Everdeen, right? To to kind of crowd out um, everybody. And Japan did that for a while. Um, it took them a while, and it was pain, you know, painful to growth in some ways, but maybe for other reasons, right? As we highlighted there, that are kind of somewhat different. I'm curious to hear, you know, you know, is there a, you know, monetization that's relatively allowed by the world that, you know, one of the best things for, uh, you know, equity values eventually was the USD pegging from the dollar, right? Um, you know, it allowed that clearing uh, much like it did, you know, much like World War II did for a new run, right, um, in the U.S. Is the U.S. going to get away with that? Uh, and and uh, is Japan, could Japan just keep doing this at this point? Yes, they're at 260% of GDP, but if they own all their own debt, does it matter? Um, right. Like, you know, if we just hit a button one day, uh, you know, 10 years down the road, uh, and say, okay, you know, we're going to take the fed and treasury and they're just going to wipe it clean. Does it, does it matter? I guess. I know the, in between here and there, there can be lots of unforeseen circumstances, lots of volatility. And I agree with you. Um, it's the unknowns that, right. And, and there is a lot more unknown than ever right now. Right. Um, but I just would love to hear your thoughts about where do you think this goes? I mean, I know you don't know, um, and nobody knows. And but but if you had to guess, like where are the, some of the the pressure points and where you think some of the greatest risks are 
you know, as, as Neil just mentioned, maybe it's not in Japan specifically, it's, but maybe it's, um, you know, the effects Japan has on other, uh, you know, funding markets. I would love to hear like a little bit more of your thoughts and specifically where, how you think that plays out. Yeah. I, I think again, the answer comes for Japan. The core, my, my belief is they have a huge opportunity. Key to that opportunity is the government crowding in the private sector. So it means they have to get their head around that definite deficits need to shrink. In fact, I say all the time in this big global hunger games, you know, the winner will be the first guy to shrink their deficit. And the guy who, you know, reduces the supply of bonds is going to be a big winner in this process. And, and Japan is in a, you know, it has the biggest overhang, but is in a unique situation that it might be easier for them to shrink supply than just about anybody else be because their private sector doesn't get hurt by higher rates in that sense, you know, whereas it's really difficult in the U.S. because of the sensitivity to higher rates and as you're trying to restore price stability. So, you know, I can foresee, again, I think the analogy is post-World War II in the U.S. You can imagine, so post-World War II in the U.S., I assume you guys know, you know, they, they did YCC, right? They pegged the 10-year treasury at 1.5%. And, and allowed inflation to run hot. But while that was happening, they shrunk government debt. And that brought in private sector debt, which resulted, arguably, call me, you know, call me Frederick Hayek biased, but, you know, that brought in far more efficient investment and productivity growth over the next decades uh, than if the government was the one spending that money. And I think Japan very much has that sort of opportunity. So what I would sort of Imagine, you know, the good outcome is they keep, you know, 10 year, which, you know, has currently come all the way back down to 60 basis points, having been up to one, you know, when it was the red flag to the bull as a hard line in the sand, you know, but keep it below one and a half and tolerate, which they're obviously showing they're willing to do, tolerate three or 4% inflation for a little while. And while you're doing that, shrink the deficit, shrink the bond supply and and yet, you know, all of that entails you have to stop doing QE. You've got to stop buying all the bonds because then you won't keep inflation steady above two, right? And, and that means, again, this transition in the banking system where those bonds inevitably they have to find their way back onto the bank's balance sheets, you know, the ongoing issuance and rollover of debt, et cetera, which then raises the question, well, where do the, how do the banks make space from that? Now, again, I don't know what's going to happen or whatnot, but I do know that Japanese banks are notoriously large investor in synthetic credit products all over the world. You know, obviously, particularly in Japan, but uh, not uh, not unaware in CLO structures in Europe and the U.S. The largest single investor in almost every single thing of significance, and and so you can imagine those things, which are complex risks and have arguably mismeasured or undercapitalized risks in them because of the utilization of sharp world mathematics and how the risks are calculated and the tranching and correlation assumptions embedded in those synthetic structures is a place that I think, you know, people should be concerned about, right? We've seen in the past when Norn Shukin decides they're going to, you know, for whatever reason, reduce their CLO purchases in one year has massive implications on U.S. CLO markets. Imagine if they decided to bring money back out of those markets because they won't, you know, they're happy to own JGBs or So I think, you know, those implications on how those flows shift, the obvious implication in dollar yen, uh, if, if that were to come to fruition, the 
you know, every time there's been a global unwind of carry, that has direct implications on the directionality of dollar yen. It goes down because yen is the funding currency of the world. Now, arguably right now, more so relatively seeing, maybe not on as a large and absolute basis, because I don't think there's as much FX carry in the world as there once was. But on a on a relative basis, the yen's role as the dominant carry currency, for obvious reasons, as everyone else's interest rates went up, and you know, dollar yen in this process since early last year has gone from a hundred to one hundred and fifty, now one hundred and forty five. Right. Well, all of that is that outflow as they were, you know, the last guy providing liquidity, and the reversal of that has obvious potential implications. And then that has implications again, the, the feed on effect to China, because China in itself is fragile because of their own credit overhang and their role in the world is fragile and their sensitivity to outflows is fragile. And Japan is a significant, 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 both financial investor and real economy investor, right? Japan has a lot of manufacturing. They were the first to expand manufacturing into the emerging market world. And Japan's a major trading partner with China. Uh, and then of course, the other thing that, you know, and I think Jasper talked about this with, uh, with Grant the other day. And, you know, something that I think is really under talked about, Japan's role in a security sense out here Everybody's well aware of the frenemy relationship frictions right now between the U.S. and China and China's, you know, clear aspirations to uh, reassume Taiwan. There is no doubt that Japan is the number one key security relationship for the U.S. and the Pacific. Nothing else is even close. And yet it gets almost no attention on the matter. It's also the U.S. is by far number one most important economic relationship in the Asia Pacific and gets little press about that. Japan has, you know, by any measure, the most high-end sophisticated manufacturing technology capability in the world. And when the U.S. needs really, really, really high-end sophisticated defense stuff built, gets built in Japan. And so I think, you know, Japan is just a, a it, you know, I'm obviously here and I've been doing nothing but Japan off and on for 35 years, but people need to pay attention to Japan. It, it matters in the world and all the geopolitical stuff. I mean, you know, I'm sure I, I don't watch any U.S. TV or news, but I'm guessing that you hear about Europe and the EU and Ukraine and, you know, 24-7 uh, with the occasional dig at China, but you probably hear about Japan something in the vicinity of never. You Even on CNBC, you don't hear about Japan. You might hear about it today because Nikkei made a new 35-year high today. Like I said, that equity market, hmm, you know, not so uninteresting. Yeah, I couldn't, couldn't agree more with all that sentiment. I do think, you know, Japan as whether, you know, you think of them as a proxy or just, uh, you know, as a, as a, as a one-two punch, you know, is the West's kind of proxy in the East. And, and, uh, I think all the activity and the volatility, you know, is, is going to bubble up in, in the East, right? The, you know, you can't, the major, the primary beneficiary, the greatest beneficiary of the last 40 year federal reserve experiment has been China. 
And that's the biggest thing that's unwinding and going to, to really, you know, how, how do you put that back in the bottle? Right. You don't, um, and that, that ends with a, a step function. Um, and that's what we're beginning to see, I think. Um, and, uh, Japan on the other end of that, right, has gone through its rebalancing period and is at a position to, to be a counterweight there. Um, and, and, uh, and that's just a, it's a dynamic bitches brew, if you will. Uh, you know, who knows which way it's going to bubble up. Uh, but, uh, I have some ideas and, and some of them are, you know, related to everything that you're, you're yeah. saying. Well, as Jim, you know, Jim and I both say all the time, Nels, volatility and liquidity are just opposite sides of the same coin and they read the same thing. We, we, we go back and forth saying we're, you know, we're, we're, we're value investors in volatility or we're just a big asymmetric store of liquidity, but you know, liquidity suppresses volatility. Well, the biggest provider of liquidity in the globe is Japan. So if you think about where I'm looking for cheap volatility, it's where that liquidity is going because that is the cheapest volatility. And the thing that has, has those conditional Bayesian sort of tails should that liquidity reverse. And in a sense, and you know, simplifying my day job, all I have to do is go and follow that liquidity. Now, conveniently, the Japanese are the, you know, original, original buyers of structured products with embedded short volatility to create yield. They're the original levered short vol carry trade global investment strategy in the world. Banks, pensions, insurance companies, right? And and I just have to wait for the phone to ring and find out which banks got involved they want to sell me that's coming out of that activity. Now in the in the good old days that was coming out of Korea and China and Singapore and you know everywhere. Increasingly uh, it's coming out of Japan. You know, Korea is not so enthusiastic. You know, the the volumes and of the Korean US all now, actually yeah. interesting. Well, now in the US, which yeah. is great, right? Cool. Now, you know, I've got, you know, and I think I told you this, Jim, you know, that you know, everyone's whining out here because now that CBOE and CME have opened up over at iTrading Desk on VIX and S&P Vol, all of the volume is shifted to that nation type instead of the, you know, the, the behemoth that used to be. I used to be, we traded more Cosby Vol and Hang Seng Vol and Nikkei Vol out here today than the U.S. traded S&P Vol. But now, because you've got this global market of S&P Vol, what structured product activity is going on? I said, well, let's just do S&P. It's easier. Yeah, and I think that's the last thing I want to really dive into with you, and I think it's so important. You get that being out east, right? But this structured product phenomenon um, has become so critical to the vol compression um, story. Um, again, it used to be in Korea and Japan and you know Singapore because of the retail component and everything else that exists out there and the different form of investing. But but here, it's you know, it's, it's getting greater and greater dominance. The interesting part is the reason, right? Here, it's not as much because of retail, people mom and pop going into, you know, uh, buying auto callables and, you know, doing, doing the whole thing. It's here, it's because interest rates actually, ironically, have gone higher. Yeah, it's weird, yeah. And this is globally the case. You know, if you think about structured products, they really didn't exist till the 1970s. Derivatives didn't exist till the 1970s. And Structured products globally didn't really get going to the 80s, 90s. So we haven't had an inflationary period yet where derivatives have been around, where structured product issuance has been ha you know, uh, uh, happening to the extent it's happening. And 
if you look at year over year growth, it's off the charts, right? And it makes sense. There's a value proposition there. You know, if you can get, because derivatives are, uh, you know, capital efficient, you can get your, your five and a half percent in the U.S. or, you know, wherever you are, you get your higher yield. And now you can stack your structured product on top of that. And that, that yield, uh, you know, is very appealing, particularly in a world that's increasingly scary and volatile, um, where markets had in two years, at least you look at it in, in the U.S. haven't gone anywhere. Other places have gone down. So there's a clear value proposition relative to several years ago, and that's driving this demand. It makes sense. It makes logical sense. But the great irony is the money used to go from the stock, during inflationary periods, used to go from the stock market to the bond market, and liquidity used to come out of the market. And now we're pulling money out from the stock to the bond market, but also into selling volatility, which is now compressing the indexes at the core. And what we've got, and we talk about this a lot, and you and I talked about it, at, at uh, RMC as well is massive dispersion, right? You have the constituents of the non-vol centers still moving with idiosyncratic risks. If you're away from the center, um, you know, liquidity is being pulled out of the system, so volatility is increasing. But if you're in the center, it's still becoming more and more pinned. It's like a donut, right? And uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts about being out East in particular and having a different perspective because this has been a thing out there for quite some time. How do you invest in that environment? When does that break? If interest rates are secularly going higher, we're seeing greater and greater inflation. We're going to see more and more structured product issuance as that goes and pin continuing to provide vol to the center of the indexes. Where, where do you go? How do you play that? How does that break? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, that's a great one. And you know, maybe this is a good way to sort of wind it down. Nails the, and, and I did in my note back to Dales, I kind of mentioned this. Then we, you and I talk about this. You know, you've got sort of the the early stage dynamic where the vol selling is in the front end is is gamma is uh, delta right selling short data puts or whatever right and 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 the the you know plays in very well to uh, you know your sort of uh, active market making trading activity. Because you're getting cheap gamma and and the ability to you know express short-term directional views on the other side of the short you know short flow imbalances around that, right? But it's really concentrated, as you say, in here, not out here. Now, what we saw in Asia over decades as vol came lower, as interest rates came lower, real yields lower, as the appetite and the the comfort with doing these things went up those products became more and more complex, more and more long dated, and started embedding much more what I would call leverage as opposed to uh, underlying and realized risk. And so I think I always think of vol selling or option selling as providing non-recourse leverage, right? And, and, and the big risks in the big unwinds isn't per se your delta exposure or gamma exposure to a pickup in realized vol or a decline in the underlying index, the big risk is you got to go and buy back the non-recourse leverage. And when that non-recourse leverage has evolved over year after year after year of this work, so I'll do something more complicated, more levered, longer dated, more, more embedded third and fourth moment type risks, and that starts to get recycled in the system. And so I think I've talked to you about this before, you know, in, in, in 
08, when S&P sold off in the aftermath of Lehman and et cetera, you, know, you had the big sell-off and you had a spike in, in VIX, but 12-month S&P all hardly moved, relatively speaking. But out here, because there was so much of this non-recourse leverage around that risk of the sell-off, the guy can't just buy back his one-month puts. He had to go and buy back two-year, three-year variants. Now, you know, the, whatever the, the, the accumulated end of that provision of third, fourth moment risk, you vol of all convexity risk. And, you know, we're trading Cosby and, you know, multi-year Cosby and Hang Sang in the high hundreds. Now, the, the asymmetry of that obviously is much, much higher than the asymmetry of gamma and delta. And so I think what you'll see evolved out, meanwhile, to get from the early stages of people selling gamma and, you know, taking very little, applying very little leverage to the structure and, but starting this compression of all that you're seeing every day right now, that took years to spread out to those products becoming highly complex with multi levers of layers of leverage and two year, three year, four year, five year, 10 year structures, right? Where the big, big, big payoff when the unwinds came was owning something five years out on the convexity surface, right? That's where the big payouts, really, really big asymmetric payouts came. But it took a long time and there was a whole lot of vol suppression and, and you know, your term, you know, we didn't use that term back here in the, in the 90s, pinned. But you want to see pinned, you know, go look at Cosby and Nikkei and uh, Hang Seng, you know, during the, you know, that, that period pre-08. I mean, that was pit. And, and there was no vol. And the vol selling was astronomical. But the good news was, you know, there was zero convexity premium. Vol of vol was priced at zero in the weeks. And, and that's, you know, I don't have to be a, a clever investor to know that I, if I buy something at zero that's bounded at zero, my asymmetry could be pretty good. And I can, I can buy that for five years, 10 years, and I don't really care if there's no realized vault for five or 10 years, right? Uh, I'll get there eventually. I was saying this to Niels earlier, and this is a little bit what I'm trying to write about for December. You know, what we're trying to do in that environment, and we were talking about this last year, about how we're trying to build distributions. What we're really trying to do, Jimmy, we're not trying to project a probability distribution. We're trying to project a possibility distribution, right? And so we're trying to measure that entropy outside the probabilistic and then saying, well, geez, if I can own something that implies zero of all of all, two years, three years, four years, five years out, the possibility of a Bayesian conditional uh, you know, shifting of the existing probability distribution has enormous asymmetric impact on the pricing of that option variant swap a skew structure or whatever. And that's really what we're sitting out here doing. And so I'm fascinated. In fact, you know, I probably spending more time talking about S&P vol than I ever have in my career because that's what the banks want to talk to me about because that's what they're doing. All right. Maybe some Nikkei as well because Nikkei's hot right now. And so that's a track, some flows. But yeah, you know, the China market is, nobody will pick up the phone if I call them to talk about China, right? So, so yeah, that's a great, it's a great story and it, it's, it's going to be, I'm, you know, I, I, I want to talk to you guys more because I don't pay enough attention to it. 
And yet I've spent my whole life doing nothing but paying attention to that stuff. And so to see it coming in the U.S. in such a big market, such a sophisticated market, and yet, as you know, it'll overwhelm everything else. Nothing else will matter. I mean, when, when Korean retail traders were full flow auto callables, every market in the world's volatility was driven by Korean retail investors, not just Kospi, but Nikkei, Hang Seng, Euro stocks, and S&P. Uh, it's phenomenal. And you, you, know, you back it out. And I know this is what's going on in your head every time you're thinking about it, Jim. Holy shit, how much Vega risk, how much you know, negative asymmetry as a group are these people taking? And we still see it out here. I think we talked about it before. You know, we had that huge surge of private banks in Asia doing accumulator products in June 2021 on Alibaba, Tencent, Ping An, the big China tech companies. And every private bank in Singapore and Hong Kong do the exact same thing. And within you know three months, the whole thing is blown up. And six months later, you're hearing rumors of billion-dollar unrecognized losses in bank after bank after bank after bank after bank on ticket sizes that were only, you know, fifty dollars to $100,000 per ticket. It's phenomenal to scale up at all. So, yeah, please keep me informed, Jim, on all that stuff. Well, we have a lot to learn. I mean, this is all kind of a brave new world, relatively speaking, out here. So, um, if, it, if it turns into the cost me, that's, that's going to oh. be... Oh man, I, I, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll try days. to, you know, again, I'll try to get some of our guys to share some of the stuff and try to see if we can start tracking down the way we look at Cosby, the way we looked at Eurodashies, the way we looked at this stuff and start looking at it and see if I can see what, what the end products are and what kind of stuff people are doing. I got to believe that the, you know, the margining requirements in the U.S. are more attuned to the potential risk than they were you know, back in 08 in Asia, but I'm not sure, right? Because again, be it, all, it all gets hidden. You know, it all comes down to some basic value at risk distribution, you know, 10-day margin period at risk stuff that, you know, really misses the tail. So yeah, I don't think, you know, obviously we, we talk about it, we know about it, but I think very few people are looking at or, or understating the scale of, of the effects that are coming from that world now. But you know, and I, I think I will it's say, important. It just, and uh, it, it, I think doing that deep dive is, you know, we're trying to do it too. Um, we'll give you a, a broad edge and uh, does represent a significant opportunity. Yeah, I, I, my, my gut guess is just looking at it from afar, is it's still not done the duration extension that we eventually saw it here. Otherwise the fixed term structure wouldn't still be like this, right? No, but, it hasn't, it hasn't. But yeah, you, you go back and look at Asian index vol term structures and even more so skew term structures you know in the pre gfc period or you know pre even pre covid and you've got inverted term structures everywhere and that inverted term structure is simply supply driven now you know so think about the scale of what that supply must be that it's beaten down traditionally positively slow vol term structures to be persistently inverted in in vega, in skew, in convexity, uh, it, 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 the scale of the flow is just phenomenal. So, you know, who knows? S&P can get there. Yeah. And it's particularly interesting in the context of, again, expanding volatility in other ways, right? Like FX vol, you know, treasury vol, right? All the other areas are 
are particularly dangerous and during inflationary times, you know, have for great reasons, right, uh, a significant uptick in vol. So you could really see a, uh, a bifurcation of vol in some ways, a dramatic bifurcation um, that's not just dispersion within the indices, but across the markets. And we already started to see that, honestly, in the last couple of years. Um, my guess is that that continues for some the time. The interest rate equity vol relationship is, you know, yeah, if you, you know, if you'd asked anybody two years ago, geez, if interest rates blow up and interest rate vol blows up, what's going to happen to equity vol? Well, obviously it's going higher. No, it's not. Apparently, apparently it's not. Yeah. The markets will forever fool you. Yes, they will. Yes, they will. I think that's a good place to uh, end this conversation with that uh, statement. Um, but I also have a feeling that we may have to increase the frequency a bit and not just make this an annual event because there's just so much stuff to to cover when I when we get you two uh, together. Dave and Jim, this has been an unbelievable, insightful, fun conversation. Thank you so much for doing this late at night in Singapore, early morning in Chicago. I have thoroughly enjoyed listening to both of you going back and forth, and I'm very sure that all the listeners uh, will as well. Um, before we go, uh, let me just encourage everyone to follow, subscribe to the amazing content that Dave and Jim produces, because as you can tell from today's conversation, we are living in a truly global macro-driven world, and it is perhaps more important than ever before to stay well-informed. From Jim and me, thanks so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you as we continue our Global Macro Series. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.